you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges. If this is your first week here, or first week in a while, we are beginning a new sermon series today in this book of Judges. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. So as you look for it, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. If you get to Ruth or First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings, you've gone too far. You need to go back a little bit in the Scripture. We begin a new sermon series on the book of Judges. I hope it will become a favorite of yours as we spend time in the book of Judges this summer. The first thing I need to tell you about the book of Judges is that this book is not about judicial officials in black robes with a gavel who preside over a trial in a courtroom. That's what we typically think of when we think of judges. But these folks, these judges in this book, are military leaders largely, and I suppose they're called judges because they bring justice to evildoers and oppressors. Uh, the word judge uses a noun, a noun's a person, place your things, so a judge is a noun. If you use the same word as it's used in the scripture as a verb, here in this book it means to deliver or to save. So these are a group of deliverers. There are 12 of them mentioned in the book. Uh, they are given different amounts of attention. Some of them only get one verse. Some of them get over 100 verses. And so we'll try to give them a proportional amount of time as they're mentioned in the scripture. Uh, but today we're just going to look at the first couple of chapters and get oriented to where we are in time. The time period we're talking about here is after Moses and Joshua... And before the kings, before the monarchy, before King Saul, King David, uh, King Solomon. Uh, so if you're familiar with the biblical line of history, if you're not, it goes like this. You've got Abraham who goes to the promised land, and Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's son, Joseph. Remember, he's sold into slavery and goes to Egypt. And then the children of Israel follow him to Egypt because there's a famine. And then a Pharaoh comes to power who does not know Joseph. And so the children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Then God raises up Moses. And Moses uh, is the one God uses to lead his people out of Egypt, to give them escape from this superpower of the day. And then when Moses dies, Joshua is God's appointed leader to succeed Moses. And Joshua has led the children of Israel uh, across the Jordan River, and they have gone into the promised land. They haven't taken all the parts of the promised land that God has told them to take, but Joshua has led them into the promised land, and as we begin the book of Judges, Joshua died. And so this is the period of time between Joshua, as the children of Israel are taking the promised land, living in the promised land, until we get to the time of kings. We're talking about 3,000 or so years ago, which you may think, oh, that's really archaic. How is that going to apply to us? But the book is surprisingly relevant to where we live today. Now, why is not that the case? Well, at this time, in the book of Judges, God's people live in a pluralistic society. And by that, I mean that they are surrounded by people who do not follow God. And so just like we do today in the culture that we live in, these folks face the constant choice of following the one true God or following the spirit of the age. 
They were always having to make that decision. Are we going to follow God? Or are we going to follow the ideas of the culture and the society around us? So this book of Judges is going to help us wrestle with questions. Questions like this. Questions like, how can we be sure to follow the one true God instead of the ideas of our culture and society around us? This book will help us think about that question. Or perhaps more importantly, this book is going to help us to answer this question. When we intend to follow the one true God, but we end up following the ideas of the culture and society around us, what do we do? What do we do as the people of God when we fail? Because I want you to know here in this book of Judges, it tells the story of how the people of God constantly failed, about how they repeatedly fell short, how they were constantly turning from following God to doing what is right in their own eyes, which we'll see as a refrain in the book of Judges. In fact, this book has such people straying from God's commands that one commentator referred to it like this. They, he referred to it as trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. Huh. Maybe you want to read it now, right? Another commentator described it this way, despicable people doing deplorable things. I agree with the idea. I might add some alliteration. Maybe despicable disciples doing dastardly deeds or something like that to have the alliteration going. But I agree with the idea. If Hollywood today were to make a movie of the book of Judges, I can assure you, if it was true to the book, it would be rated R or NC-17 or whatever the highest rating is given by the Motion Picture Association of America. Because this book is dismal. And as time goes by and Judges, things get worse and worse. Even the heroes, the judges themselves, are increasingly flawed. The good guys in this book do awful things, and the bad guys are appalling. We'll see today half-hearted obedience by the people of God in war. And as we go through the book, we're going to see things like assassination and manipulation and fornication and prostitution and gang rape and murder and dismemberment of people by the time you get to the end of the book. In fact, by the time you get to the end of this book, you may be asking, what is this book even doing in the Bible? Why is it even in here? And that's an important question to ask. It's more important to answer that question because the answer is so important because the answer to that question is, this book is the good news of the gospel. The book of Judges shows that the Bible is not a book of moral examples of good people that we should imitate. If you have the Jesus stories book, Bible at home, go read the very first chapter, and it makes this point. That yeah, there's some good folks in there, but, but even the good people do a lot of bad things. You see, the book of Judges and the Bible itself is a book about God, who is merciful and patient, and forgiving. And as Will mentioned, the, the theme, who is so 
faithful to his people who is constantly at work in and through broken and messed up people. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. Because if I can look at a book and I can see that God loves broken and messed up people like the ones in this book, if we see that God not only loves, but God uses broken and messed up people to advance his kingdom like the ones we see in this book of Judges, that gives us hope. Because that means God can love broken and messed up people like us. And it means that God can use broken and messed up people to advance his kingdom. People like us. People like in the place where we live. There's only one hero in the Bible and in the book of Judges and in life in general. It is God who works to rescue unfaithful, undeserving people out of the mess that their sin brings on them. I love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller is a retired pastor in our denomination. He's got this book on Judges. And in the introduction, he lists what he sees as the six main themes in the book of Judges. I'm just going to read the first one, but I love the way he phrases it. Listen to what he says. The biggest thing, number one thing in the book of Judges, God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it or seek it or even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. The book of Judges is not about a series of role models, though there are a few good examples, uh, Othniel, Deborah, they are early on in the book and do not dominate the narrative. The point is that the only true Savior is the Lord. Judges is ultimately about grace abounding to sinners. God's grace will triumph over the stupidest actions. Amen. I'm in. Let's go. Let's dig in. Let's get in this book. I can't wait to see what God has for us here. So if you found the book of Judges... Let's look at those first two verses of chapter 1. We're right here at the beginning of the book. Hear now God's word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Let's stop right there. Joshua has died, right? No one people just go to Joshua and ask him questions. But Joshua's dead, and so the people are crying out to God, you've given us this instruction, take land. Who goes first? I imagine maybe they're a little timid, right? The Canaanites are out there. Okay, Lord, who goes first? There are 12 tribes. Who is this supposed to go first? A lot of times when we're hesitant, we'll say, well, will you go first? <laughs> After you, right? And so God is patient with them and answers the question and assures them that he has given the land over to Judah, that they will be successful. But it's important to remember here in Judges chapter 1, that when it talks about after the death of Joshua, you have to remember we're joining a story that is already in progress. The book of Joshua has set the stage for Judges. And so for in order for you to understand this chapter 1, I want you to know two things about the book of Judges that God repeats. He tells Joshua in chapter 1. Joshua tells the people of God perhaps several times throughout the book. And his latest is chapter 23. And in 24, again, the last two chapters of the book of Joshua, Joshua has emphasized these things from God before his death. And there are a couple of things that are really important you should know. 
The first thing God has been telling this people through Joshua, the first thing God has said is, listen, I want you to trust me. God keeps reminding them, I have brought you out of Egypt. Stay close to me and stay close to me in my word. He told Joshua, meditate on the word day and night. Keep it always on your lips. That means never stop talking about it. He tells him to meditate on it day and night. God says to, to the children of Israel, look to me. Find me in my word. Don't look at your own strength. Don't look at the situation that you're in. Don't look at the culture and the people around you. Look to me. Trust in me. And then, God says, no, so number one, trust me. Number two, God says, obey me. Walk in my ways. This is the same path. He says, be careful to do all that I command, he says several times in Joshua. That's where you see this saying, don't turn to the right or to the left. God's saying, do it exactly as I tell you to do. And then God has given them the exact dimensions of the land that they are to take. And of course, the people, as we stall sometimes, said, well, okay, but who goes first? And God lays it out for me. He says, listen, I want you to take the land and I want you to drive out the people that are there. These Canaanites have... They're, they're bad folks. They've done bad things. God to give them a chance to repent. There were times he said, I'm not going to give you the land yet because the full amount of their sinning has not taken place, but they've not repented. And so God's judgment on them, they're going to be pushed out of the land. So God says, I want you to push them out of the land. All right. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice something about those two things, trusting God and obeying God. I love the offertory, trust and obey, rate him. But I want you to notice as we enter into this book that trusting God and obeying God go together. Now, why is that important? It seems pretty, of course, trusting God and obeying God, those things go together. Well, think about it. We often make the mistake of calling people to obey God who do not yet know God, who have not yet trusted in God, that we have this expectation that they're going to obey God. Listen, it's trusting God and getting to know Him that leads to our obedience. If we know God and trust Him, it's a whole lot easier to obey Him, right? If we know that God controls all things, if we know that He knows all things, if we know that he has our best at heart, if we know him in that way, then it's much easier to obey him. And obedience is tough when we don't know God and we don't trust God. We don't know what he has in mind for us. We don't always trust him. We don't know that he knows all things and he's in control or that he wants what's best for us. In fact, I would say this. That our failure to obey God is most times, at its root, a failure to know God and to trust God. Let me say that again. This is an important point. I would say that our failure to obey God is most times, at its root, a failure to know God and to trust God. And that's important as we come into this book. Here's why. If you are here today... And you do not yet know the God of the 
5. And if you have not yet placed your trust in him, then I want you to hear this. Do not hear this sermon as a call to obey him. Because before obedience becomes trusting him and knowing him. So if that's where you are, he says, listen, I don't know this God of the Bible. I'm not sure that I trust him yet. Then hear this sermon as a call to get to know him. Because when you really get to know the God who is there, as Francis Schaeffer called him, the God who is there, the God who exists, the God of the Bible, you will find him utterly trustworthy. It will be easier to obey him and walk in his ways. In fact, if you want to get to know God better, I don't know if you heard the promotional league game, we're starting a book study next week, 9 a.m. this room, gentle and lowly. We would love for you to come and hear more about the heart of God. And about his glory manifested in the Lord Jesus. We're going to be talking about that for the next several weeks. That's a great way to get to know God better. So if you're here and you don't yet know the God of the Bible, you're not yet trusting in him, then don't hear this sermon as a call to obey. Hear this sermon as a call to get to know him so that you might find him to be trustworthy. Now, if you're here today and you are a follower of God, you say, yes, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus, I know God or know of him, I've made a decision to place my trust in him, I consider myself to be a follower of God, I want you to hear that God does call his people to obey. We are called to obedience. Not because God just wants to control us and tell us what to do, but because God knows what's best for us. Because he wants what's best for us. He wants us to avoid snares and traps and thorns in our side. And so in his grace and his mercy, he tells us what the safe path is, and he calls us to walk in his ways for that reason. So if you are a follower of God, if you know him, if you trust in him, then he does call us to obedience. And if you struggle with your obedience, remember that same point that our failure to obey is most times at its root of failure to know God or trust God, or for those of us who do know him, we forget or we begin to believe lies about God. We believe to begin things that are not true. In fact, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of God, I want to ask you to consider what lies you're tempted to believe about God. And here's why that's important. Because it's at that very point that you believe something that's not true about God, that's where you're going to struggle with obedience. For instance, if you're not sure God knows all things, you're not sure he's omniscient, then it's a lot easier to say, eh, I don't know if God knows about the 10th grade. I don't know if God knows about same-sex attraction. I don't know if God really knows about gender confusion. So I might know a little bit more about God in this area, so that it's easier for us to walk in our own way than in God's ways. So know what lies we believe we believe he doesn't know anything. Or sometimes we think, well, God knows everything. He controls everything. But I'm not sure he's out for my good. For whatever reason, because of our temperament, because of our background, the way we've been treated, the way we've been sinned against. We think, I'm not sure God has my bed, so I'm not sure I'm going to trust and walk in his ways. I want to hold back a little bit of control here because I'm not sure what he might do. I was here a few weeks ago, and God called somebody in this congregation to go to Africa. What if he did that? Just not too sure that God's got my best in heart. So when we believe lies, whatever point it is that you believe lies about God, that's where it's going to be 
heart for you to trust him and obey him. So it's important to know where it is you believe lies about God. Well, let's get back to the text. Verses 3 to 18, the, the children of the tribe of Judah goes into the land in the southern campaign. They do really well. They're pushing the people out. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And then you get to verse 19. Pick up in verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now you need to know that good military policy says that you do not engage in battle an army that has some kind of numerical or technological or some kind of superior advantage because you're going to lose. So in that situation, you either look for good terms of a surrender or a way to avoid war. And so these folks are following good military policy. They've got chariots. We don't. We're not going to engage them. So that's what happens in verse 19. Look at verses 27 and 28. Manasseh did not, that's another tribe that goes into the land. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages in Tanakh, and its villages are the inhabitants of Dor, and its villages are the inhabitants of Ablim, or its villages are the inhabitants of Megiddo, and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now, you need to know that good military policy also dictates that you don't have to lose men and resources by engaging a people that you're clearly superior to them militarily. And so the thought was, instead of wasting the men's lives by fighting and the resources, let's just move into the area. We can plunder this people and use them for forced labor. It's a whole lot more efficient. It's a whole lot more convenient. We've got them to do the stuff we don't want to do. And so that's what the tribe of Manasseh did. And that's what the tribe of Zebulun did in verse 30. And that's what the tribe of Naphtali did in verse 33. And that's what the tribe of Joseph did in, in verse 35. And so by the time we get to the end of Judges chapter 1, we have some plausible reasons for why the military campaign did not drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Verse 19, they had superior military mind. Verses 27 and 28, we're wisely saving resources. And at first reading, we read Judges 1 and we agree, hey, that makes sense. And we nod our heads and say, okay, well, I agree with what they're saying. <laughs> but if you keep reading and find out, God does not agree with chapter 1. Look at Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, the boy king, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Isn't that interesting? Chapter 1, verse 19, we're told, well, the Israelites, they could not drive them out because they had these irons, uh, uh, chariots uh, of iron. You say, okay, well, that makes sense. 
In these other verses, they did not drive them out. They just plundered their stuff and used them for forced labor. We said, well, that makes sense. That's sufficient. And God says, you've not obeyed. You might have followed good military policy. You might have done what was efficient or convenient. Or you may have even believed, I can't. Because of the iron series. But God says, no, it's not that you can't. It's you have disobeyed. You see, Judges chapter 1 is Israel's perspective of what's going on. This is Israel's press releases, what you link to the press, right? This is Israel's spin on what has happened. Yeah, we took a lot of the land, the southern part, and then the parts we didn't hear the reasons why. Judges 2 is God's perspective. And in case you're wondering, oh, by the way, he's right. But remember what we learned about obedience from Joshua. That knowing God and trusting God comes before obeying God. That, that it flows in that direction. So we've seen that not obeying comes from not knowing and not trusting God. And it's true. Military policy says don't engage with somebody unless you have the advantage. But trusting God in this situation, instead of trusting in your own strength or trusting in what you see in the situation around you, meant engaging those even with numerical or technological advantages. God has done supernatural things to free this people from Egypt. Egypt had chariots. They were the superpower of the day. Much stronger than these little Canaanite folks who were in the land. Yet these folks looked at the iron chariots and said, we can't. God says, no, you won't. You're being disobedient. You're trusting in yourself and the own situation. You know, forced labor, it is good military policy to not lose men and resources and engage in fighting the people you can plunder and use for forced labor. That's a lot more efficient and convenient. But God did not say to do that. He said to drive the people out of the land. And he tells why. Because their gods will be a distraction to you. They'll be a trap, a snare. These people are going to continue to be thorns in your side if you don't Push them out, of, and I don't even have an answer. I, don't, you know, I can say good military policy, don't engage somebody who's superior to you. Good military policy, if you can just plunder and force labor. I don't even have an answer for verse 27. Did you catch it at the end there? Manasseh did not drive out all these inhabitants. At the end of the verse, it says, For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Your translation may. They may say this, the, the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. It says it again in verse 35. Basically what they're saying is, well, I mean, they just really wanted to live here. They wanted to live here more than we really wanted to drive them out. So we just let them stay and submitted them to forced labor. <laughs> That's why I mentioned that this is about half-hearted obedience. Basically they're saying they want it more than what we, that they want to stay more than we want to obey you, God. That's what they're saying. Oh my. This Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 2 is so interesting to me. As we look at Judges 1, 
as Israel's perspective, what happened in Judges 2 is God's perspective. It's so instructive for us. Think about that with me. It's so instructive for us because it shows us that all of us as the people of God, even followers of God, have a great capacity for self-deception. Well, I always got a reason why I haven't obeyed. I mean, I so try to live in the world of Judges 1 and have really good reasons why I haven't done what God has told me to do. You ever do that? You hear that voice in your head? Oh, I've obeyed a lot of other areas. We took the whole southern part of the land. I've done all these other things. God, isn't that enough? I fall short in one area. I've obeyed in a lot of other ways. Just not this one. Sometimes we think, well, it's really not good policy to do it that way. I mean, I know that's what God says, but that's not the, the most efficient way to do it. It's not the most convenient way to do it. Maybe I know a little more than what God knows. In this situation, I'm going to go with common sense. I'm going to go with what good policy would be. And sometimes we look at what God says and we just say, I can't. And God says, no, that's not. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. It's just disobedience, plain and simple. I wonder... Is there anything like that for you? In my experience as a pastor, let me suggest a few places where I see people say that. As I examine my own heart, I see this in my own heart. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her. I can't. God says, no, you won't. Read Matthew 18, all the way down to that last verse of verse 35. We're commanded to forgive people from our heart. And even with forgiveness, the problem is not our obedience so much as at its root. It's that we don't know God and trust Him. Because if we look at Him, we see how much He's forgiven us. We realize nobody's wronged us as much as we've wronged God. And if he's willing to forgive us, we see his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness for people who don't deserve it. All of a sudden, it enables us to extend that grace and mercy to other people, even when they don't deserve it. Sometimes we hear that voice in our head like this. Is God's way really the best way? Are you sure God knows about this? Does the Bible really contemplate this? Does God, is God's way really best on sex and sexuality? I mean, the Bible didn't contemplate anything like what we're seeing today. Is God's way really the best way on marriage? Is God's way really the best way on gender? I don't know if God knew everything we were going to be facing. You hear the, the subjects. We really know more than what God knows. <laughs> so I can override what God has to say. God says, no, it's not that you know more, it's that you're disobedient. Sometimes we legitimately say, I cannot stop doing this, even though I know it's wrong, I can't. And sometimes God says, knows that you're being disobedient. But I want to be clear. You've got to be careful. Because sometimes we say, I can't. And I want to be careful because 
I'm going to be honest, sin is addictive. And sometimes it's true that you may be so far into this sin that you cannot stop on your own, by your own power, by sheer willpower. You can't muster up the strength within yourself. You said you're going to stop a thousand times, but you haven't. And you may have actually gotten to the point that you've developed an addiction and you legitimately on your own can't stop. What do we do then? Well, we've got to admit God is right and we're wrong. I know what I'm doing is wrong and that I need to stop. God, I need you to help me. Then we've got to seek help. We've got to place ourselves in a place where we can be accountable to other people so that they can help us and walk with us. Because it's not that we can't stop. It's that we won't. I love what the New Testament says about this. You know, a lot of times we find in principle in the New Testament what's illustrated in the Old Testament. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, we read there, these things, talking about the Old Testament, happened to them as examples. I thought you said that this wasn't a book of examples. Well, it's not an example of moral examples of good people that you should, that you, should you know, follow. What it says here is that these things happen, happen as examples and were written down as warnings for us. <laughs> I'm just telling you what not to do. Right? So these things were written down, and they happened to them as examples, were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I love that verse 12. You realize the Corinthian church, they're in this a thousand years. After the judges, right? And I'm sure they thought, oh, we've developed, we've come so far in a thousand years. Corinth was a very developed city. All kinds of stuff going on in Corinth. And the warning is the same. If you think you're standing firm, be watch out. We have a great capacity for self-deception. And then what does he say? The answer is look there, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. <laughs> you think you're facing something that God doesn't know about? You're not. On some level, the Bible addresses it. God's not surprised. You're not facing any temptation that mankind has not faced since the beginning of time. Don't believe that lie. Then what does he say? Our theme for today. And God is faithful. <laughs> Notice he doesn't say, so straighten up and get your act together. He says, know that there's not anything God doesn't know about. And God is faithful. God's faithful. We looked at his strength. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Oh, child of God, struggling with this sin that you can't defeat. Look for the way out. Hear the word this morning that God is faithful. He will provide a way out. Get to know him. Trust in his faithfulness to you. 
You know, in our own minds, our excuses seem so reasonable. They make so much sense to us. They're so persuasive to us. But if we're honest, oftentimes it's not that we can't. It's that we won't. We're disobedient. We have half-hearted obedience. But when you have trouble obeying God, remember the other part of that equation we learned. That if we know God well, then we will trust Him. And if we learn to trust Him, then we learn to obey Him. So when you struggle with obedience, usually it's at this point the preacher says, you need to get more discipline. <laughs> Guess what? You're the problem. You're not the solution. Look to the one who can give you the strength. Look to God. That's what God says. What does he say when these people are being disobedient? In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I brought you up from Egypt. He reminds them of his faithfulness. Look how I've overcome so many things for you in the past. You never thought you would escape slavery in Egypt and be standing in the promised land. Yet here you are. Don't doubt God's ability to do anything. His faithfulness. I will never break my covenant with you, he says. And he gives us the things to do, the things that he wants us to obey. He wants to remove these things because they're thorns, they're snares, they're traps. And God wants us to obey him because he wants what's best for us. Listen, he made you. And so he knows what's best for you. He made the whole world. He knows how it's designed to work. He knows how life, he knows how life is best lived in the world that he made. Verse 3, God says, you allow these distractions to remain. When you knew, you should drive them out. And now there'll be thorns in your side, snares, traps in your life. I wonder, what things have we allowed to remain in our life? That we know we should drive out. But we've allowed them to remain. Now there are thorns in our side. Thorns in our relationships. Thorns in our marriages and in our work. Thorns in our side. Snares, traps that, that we're trying. We feel trapped. What do we do? God is faithful. Ask God to give you the willingness and his power to remove these things. And we get that power and that resolve by looking to him. Look at his faithfulness. Look at how he provides for us. Look at how he has protected us. Look at how he's present with us even when we don't deserve it or appreciate it or even recognize it. He remains When we were his enemies, hating one another and hated him, he was willing to give his most precious thing. He gave his one and only son. Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You hear the thought process? If he's given the most important thing, he's already given his most precious thing for you. How is he not going to 
whom anything else in heaven and earth and that you will be all that he's made you to be. What more does he need to do to show you that he has your best at heart and he's willing to do anything for you? I call you today. Run to him. Get to know him. When we see him for who he is, then we see he's so utterly trustworthy. And we begin to trust him. And that leads to our obeying him. And when we walk in his ways, that's when we really live life as it was designed to be lived. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so faithful to people who are often faithless. I just pray for my brothers and sisters, for those who cry out and say, Lord, I know what I'm doing wrong. I pray that you would give us the resolve and the strength to drive those things out of our hearts to drive those things out of our homes, to drive those things out of our lives. Yes, so that we can be obedient to you. But so that we can live life the way you designed it to be lived. So that we can walk in your ways and enjoy your creation as you designed it to be enjoyed. So that we can avoid those thorns in our sides, those places where we're ensnared, where we're trapped. Oh, Father, give us freedom. Remind us of your faithfulness. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.